0: Onura is the author of the wonderful book Pitch Black, a forensically researched history of black players in the British professional men's game. He comes from a decorated Nigerian scout's family, his brother Ify played for and managed a number of football league clubs, and his sister Anika is an Olympic medal winning British sprinter. If that's not enough, their cousin Victor be play for Everton, West Brom and Sunderland in the Premier League. I interviewed Emmy in the busy community bakery Homebaked, which has become such a staple part of the matchday routines of many Liverpool fans because it sits in the shadow of Anfield Stadium's cop end. Apologies for the background noise at times. And as is customary on this podcast, I began by asking staunch
1: Evertonian Emmy what his first memories of football were. played for Middlesbrough at the time, it was a really dull game, but somehow I was hooked. Um, it was a really dull game. Um, so yeah, that was one all. Uh, did you say who was me first hero? Did you first hero, yeah. First hero, Bob Latchford? Um Yeah, Bob Latchford, thirty goals a season, that kind of stuff. But also, my first where the where where the thing, the obsession came was probably seventy four World Cup. Um, just because World Cups were, you, you, saw, you didn't see you know it was it was it was all the Dutch. It was all top football. Um, you didn't. It's it's not like now where all the big players you get to see them in the Champions League every other week. that kind of players turned up from countries who you didn't, who you didn't know about. Um, nobody played in. Nobody from outside Europe played in Europe. In fact, most players played in their own countries. Um, that was where. It, it, so so the Dutch were kind of you know total football, dead exotic, long hair. Um, looked like rock stars, um, and played and played this great football as well. Do so, you remember the final? Final, dull game, dull as anything game. You got that. it, never they lost. Yeah, there was, It was gutted like, <laughs> it, like it was a fan, do you know what I mean? It was bizarre, cause, uh, I mean it went pretty quick, but yeah, there was gutted. I remember the second half, it was a dull game, I remember second half, going in my backyard and playing footy because I didn't want to <laughs> see the end do you know what I mean, and hoping that if I didn't watch they'd equalise, but um, they probably just never looked like equalising, to be honest and uh, that was that, but yeah, that was, their kind of some of the earliest memories, and then obviously you know, just being around in the streets, in school, playing football with other kids as well, so um, so I always loved playing, always loved you know, just the running around and the playing and trying to get better and trying to Kick out or dribble or or throw myself around in goal as well was one of the things I loved doing as well. So just so playing and watching, I think they were the kind of things that I just. Liked. And when did you start going home and away? It wasn't until I got some kind of disposable income that started going away. Wow. Uh,
0: Those were in the days before season tickets as well, weren't they? So
1: the days before season tickets. Uh, I think I got one of the both the, when I got some disposable income. I had a season ticket because I just knew that I could. Um, that it was more affordable for the start. didn't have to fork out for every single game, and it mean that I'd, I'd go as well, so that was a good thing. Going away would have been around about 83, 84, I started going away, so like I said, 18 on a student grant, disposable income, um, uh, you know, a student grant didn't, um, it, it didn't mean that you could, uh, you know, Drive fancy cars or anything. But we had a bit of income to be able to do stuff, and of course, I was at home as well. I was a home student, but we were so poor. We got I got um, a full grant, a full living away grant, even though I was at home. So um, that was yeah, 83, 84 was when it probably started. And were
0: going there away. any restrictions on going away, or could you just basically get on a bus or get on a train and turn up somewhere and get a ticket and walk You know,
1: these yeah, days now much. you have yeah, the yeah, yeah, you have yeah, the yeah. sports
0: club. You have to go into a raffle. You have to go into a raffle.
1: You have to go a You have to get your ticket before. No, you could turn up and pay on the gate, which is what we did most of the time, unless it was a big game. Uh, so semi-finals. semi semifinals, semifinals, The derby. Um, so I'm not even sure the derby was. I remember playing. I remember going to Old Trafford and just paying on the gate. Um, so I think most places, you got on the coach. We used to go we used to either go on the train depending on where it was, or if we were going a little bit further the fair, we used to go on Amberline, which was the uh, coach firm that used to do the games. So we used to go on them and just turn up and pay and uh, yeah, it was dead easy and you know, you might complain about the ticket prices here and there, but it was you know, if someone charged five pounds to get in, that was a disgrace. But, you know, as as Chelsea probably did, or some of the other London teams but um, but yeah, it was it was it was pretty easy to kind of uh you know just get up and, and and just go. So there was no there wasn't a lot of forward planning needed. In fact, I remember you know a couple of times someone a mate had phoned me up the night before or the morning said we're all off to whatever. Do you fancy coming? Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you fancy coming? And I go yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll end or I'll drop whatever I'm doing and go up. And uh, so that's what we did. Or we had a spare place on the um, coach or something. I think it was transport was the thing more than anything. If you could get there, that was the drive more than, uh, you know, the the ticket for the game. You could pay on the door.
0: So when did you start seriously thinking about football as something that was going to be an academic project or something that you want going to study?
1: Never, uh, to be honest, until... until, I mean I was, always, I was always interested in... So what was your first degree? Because
0: obviously some of the people mm. listening to this podcast will be early career researchers course, yeah, people yeah, doing MS or people doing MAs, or people doing PhDs like yourself and you've done kind of the opposite way around. Yeah, you've yeah, done yeah, yeah. a brilliant book and then yeah.
1: your PhD. So what, in, what was your path into football as an academic study? My path into football as an was a couple of things. First of all, it was the whole uh, ID cards thing. The ID cards was a big thing. Um, the introduction or the proposals to introduce ID cards in the wake of uh, Heisel and uh, Well, in the wake of Heisler, it was the first thing where I kind of fiercely thought of the politics of football. That was the that was the catalyst if you like. Um, started uh, a fanzine with a group of uh, friends. It wasn't specifically Everton orientated, but it was uh, more of a Merseyside based one. So we used to go it uh, took us to from one week feel the next week selling it outside the grounds it was called What's the Skull um, with a group of mates uh, some of whom were you know we were probably 50-50 reds and blues so it was so, a very furtive time wasn't it? furtive time sorry it for was, it fans was, it was because it. you had because you had the
0: end out <laughs> at the same time as the end, well the end was the end was or had it, had it
1: finished? I think it was on hiatus at that time right. it was on one of its hiatuses oh, at the time uh, but the way all the other fan team's knocking around, I mean, when Saturday comes, it was was probably the big one. Right? FP McConville, yeah, what a writer he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so when Saturday comes, what was the other ones? Can't remember. They would the been. They would the, they, they were the big ones too. Not through the wind and the rain, but I mean, anyway. <coughs> um, I think when Saturday comes was a national one, and uh, off the back of, and then loads of loads of other ones started around the same time as well. So. That's where it first kind of started getting involved in, in, in terms of writing about football and writing about issues to, related to football. But it wasn't in any way, I never saw it as being a kind of academic kind of exercise. It was more of an activist exercise, More than, yes. not that it was particularly... Not that we... We, we, we sought to of have a voice, um, but the idea of mobilising people around a particular issue, uh, we realised was... Um, well, it was uh, a bit of a long shot, but we didn't we certainly wanted to kind of raise awareness of issues that were going on and provide a good read as well. So uh, it was probably that. Um, later on, it was probably the experience we brother as you know we became uh, was uh, as a professional footballer. and one of the things really in terms of anti- racism was just the experience of going around various grounds across the country. Listening to him getting racist, you know, loads of abuse. That was the other, you know, it was my little brother at the end of the day. So the, um, the thing in terms of anti-racism was really uh, the experience of my little brother being racially abused, you know, by by away fans, whatever it was, he was playing, playing things.
0: Yeah. And he himself works and he himself works in in anti-racism work now with the. PFA, isn't it? Uh-huh, yeah. um, what was the experience of being from a, a, an immigrant community if I can say that? Uh-huh. You know, somebody who'd seen life in Glasgow, or uh-huh. do you remember much about Glasgow? Not really,
1: not really but, it, but I don't really, I mean I must have left when I was uh, waking and out, I must have left when I was three or four. Right, okay. Uh, so I don't really remember much of it, I've got vague recollections of um, the street where I lived in and the nursery I attended and that kind of stuff, but Well, presumably, being where where you went to school and lived in
0: the town I live in, which is Crosby, which is a very white middle class and actually quite a Catholic place as well. So, was there part of an experience there about being on the outside and feeling being on the outside, even
1: with well-meaning people? Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were we weren't the only in uh, Crosby there was probably But well, we knew all the others there was uh, three or four other black families in and around but we were the only ones in our school
0: remember your cousin's family moved to Crosby when Victor's family for their that would have been
1: in, uh, much later yeah it was much later I think I've got a vague recollection it was in uh, uh, late 80s mid well, it's to it's late for,
0: 80s it's just amazing that that the two of the most famous uh, black footballers of the generation both came from the whitest, most middle-class yeah, town yeah, in Merseyside.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, um, so, 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 uh, you know, I did, I did, I grew up there from the age of about eight, eight or nine, something like that, um, and then stayed till it was kind of, you know, for the next ten years or yeah. thereabouts. But, um, but certainly, yeah, we were definitely outsiders. We were definitely made to feel outsiders a lot of the time. I even recollect, the, you know, it was the time of the 70s where, you know, I recollect um, National Front on our school gates giving out leaflets. Um, I remember they said on them, it wasn't, they, I remember I remember the leaflets on them, they said, can you spot a red teacher? So it was more aimed at, you know, anti- this, specific, this particular leaflet was more about uh, anti-left, anti anti-socialist kind of stuff. But it did have, but on the other side of it, it did have a lot of kind of, uh, I can't even remember the kind of details, but it was a load of racist stuff on the, yeah. on the other side of it. So, so, I, so I do distinctly remember uh, being an outsider, feeling an outsider, and of course as well, playing football. Um, and going around the city and around the area and playing for Sunday League teams and that kind of thing, and representing you know, North Sefton boys as well at football. Um, you know, you're going for the 50-50 tackle, the first thing somebody remembers is that you're black and, uh, and so the inevitable kind of you know racist kind of yeah. slayers come out and you're forced into a situation where you have to look after yourself. Uh, and so there was just this constant kind of having to look after yourself and sometimes having to get your retaliation in first, that kind of experience. So
0: zoom forward to four or five years ago whenever Hitch Black came out, which is like a genuinely game-changing book, it's, and I've you you and not how much I love that book, but you know, it's encyclopedic and it's panoramic, it's informed by brilliant interviews. When did you start thinking about writing the book, and you know how did you go about writing it? For people who are thinking of a project like that, how did you go about doing it?
1: I think I talked about it from probably seven or eight years before, and to be honest, I thought about it. And and the catalyst was I'd seen a lot of articles and writing, and not less, some of it academic, but mainly journalistic. Uh, I'd seen a lot of writing about racing football, much of which I thought was really poorly written or informed and uh, and so on and I remember complaining about it to a mate and he said, well why don't you write me your own? And so it was a kind of, he said it as a kind of throwaway remark to shut me up but uh, from there the kind of gem of an idea kind of came, came about and and uh, it then, it, but I never had the time to kind of uh, do it really, and it, it, it took me a while to kind of get the time or make the time to kind of really put it together. And so, for people who don't, who haven't read the book, it's got you know really eye-opening interviews
0: with people like Paul Cannonville, yeah, yeah, yeah. your fella, um, you know all the major black footballers of the 70s and 80s. 70s, so, yeah. how did you go about doing those interviews so, and? And getting the time and threading them together because it's a fairly it's a it's a it's a book that's a historical book that'd be Definitely. fair to say yeah, yeah, so it absolutely. starts off with the 60s and 70s yeah, yeah, works yeah. through west brom and chelsea and yeah, yeah, the three yeah. Degrees, yeah. and then right up to the present day yeah, yeah, and yeah. as people like joe cable on the collective will right. tell you like you know the way the media yeah. behaves towards Raheem Sterling. Now, this hasn't gone away. Yeah, no, so how did, you, how did you go about getting the interviews and
1: writing about this? So um, I suppose so what I did was, I, when I was starting to think about the structure of the book and how it was going to be put together, the technical most technical simplest thing, thing to, to me seemed to, to, technical to, technical to, things to, things to be to do it chronologically. Seemed to be the most straightforward way of doing it. Do it in a chronological way. So start from the point at which, to me, We start to get um, more prominent black footballers in the game. I suppose the place where it started, there's a good book called Colouring Over the White Line by a guy called Phil Vasili, He did like a 100-year history of black footballers. His finish is round about 1970. Oh, no, his finish is round about 1980. And in a sense, what I wanted but to do was kind sit, of pick up yeah, from where he left. Yeah, up. I don't mind saying just, this because Phil's amazed as well. So I don't mind saying that, um, just, saying please, this. So it was the point at which his 25, uh, 25, yeah. fit ended. Yeah. I thought, well, what I wanted to do was but something
0: that, like that started
1: album? around the 70s. But also, from a personal then? point of view, I could weave in some of the kind of uh, issues that, because, uh, because what I wanted to also demonstrate that is that the development of black footballs doesn't happen in isolation. I mean, we think that uh, we can think of it. We can think of um, uh, you know Raheem Sterling now, and the fact that he's able to um, to, to to write in social media and to highlight mm-hmm. the, the racism cool. of the um, of uh, you know mainstream media. And for Mm -hmm. it to get an echo, it's something that couldn't have happened 20, 30 years ago. But, um, but, but, you know, and the reasons for that are kind of historic and and, and sociological as well. So, So So
0: for for me, it
1: it was about a couple of things I wanted to kind of get across. One of the things I really wanted to say was, was that actually, we yeah. think of football as being a white working class yeah. game, historically, yeah. but actually what I wanted to demonstrate that actually it was a working class game, and it was a black working class game. One of the thing, one of the points I make in it is that uh, of all the statues dedicated to black British people yeah, in the country, nice. there's only one who's not a footballer, Boy, that's and there's one of the uh, three degrees, there's one of Walter Tull, there's one of um, Arthur Wharton. Uh, so the in terms of the achievements of Black Britons, um, if, if you can if you can you know uh, illustrate it by the number of statues that I have. If you think of statues on war memorials of museums or build prominent buildings and so on. Um, uh, I just thought I just thought that um that, in a sense, kind of illustrated uh, the way in which football is part of the culture of the black community, to be honest. So, that's one of the, one of the things I wanted to get on uh, over. But also, was really keen to challenge, there was a kind of a media narrative at the time, less so now, but there was a media narrative at the time I wrote the book, which was when the 80s was in the past and it's water under the bridge, and we've all moved on. So it's the kind of moved-on narrative. And I kind of wanted to challenge some of that, because what I felt that hadn't been was a, a, a proper assessment of those times, really. And what I wanted to do was ensure that the footballers who I who, who wanted to talk about, who I wanted to interview, got an opportunity to talk about what it was like during that, that period growing up. So how I selected them was um, essentially... Partly from memory, partly from reading.
0: And your can help out with contacts and stuff as well. He definitely anyway. helped
1: with loads of contacts. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, I, in a sense, I kind of gave him a, a bit of a wish list, and um, he was able to come up with some people, and then other and then other people said, "You really need to support, talk to person X, Y, and Z." Um, and that's really how it came about. So I kind of had a structure, and I wanted to fill it with uh, with interviews. Uh, of people who I uh, wanted to, to speak about. and was prepared to kind of have my perceptions challenged quite a lot. And there were some things that I kind of changed my perception on quite a bit in terms of some things. Um, one of the things that I changed my perception about was... Um, it was, it was I was interviewing Brendan Batten, and uh, my my original idea was... You go for, imagine going to work and having 40,000 people um, giving you racist abuse, that must be the worst kind of racism that, that imaginable, was be, imaginable. Yeah. and he said, actually um, that's what he did, but he had made two work in fort and Dagenham and he said, at the time um, they had a, an instant policy of if you fight, it's an instant dismissal and they had you know, not to the foreman, the national front Um they, they 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 used to be openly selling far right material on the line and outside the gates. Uh, it was and um, you know there were people from Southeast Asia, there were people from the West Indies uh, who worked at that place, and um, and he said you know compared to them, I was we were protected. Nobody could really get on the pitch. Yeah, it was a great grief, but um, but it wasn't. It was nowhere near as bad as some of his friends who were working in industry. So that was one of the things that we that challenged me kind of perception of um, their experiences. But notwithstanding that, uh <clears throat> um like I said, I wanted to um, yeah, like I said, I had a wish list of people who I wanted to interview. And uh that was supplemented by people saying, Yeah, you need to speak to this person or that person and uh that's how it came about. And so the way I started was I wanted to. I wanted to personally interview everyone, but logistically it just wasn't possible. I started off by. Uh, I think the first person I interviewed was probably Brendan Batten, and then Cyril Regis, and I, and I've got to speak to them in person. Uh, I think pretty. I think John Barnes I spoke to in person. I think Paul Cannaville I spoke to in person. After that, I think everyone I spoke to was on the phone. But the personal left. recommendations were really yeah. important. That's the football world, isn't it? it is, uh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. I think even as a left-leaning uh,
0: middle-class academic who uh-huh. worked as a journalist and who he thinks he's been about it, but even I was shocked at the Paul Cannibal story. Like, it's just—you know—could you tell people haven't read the book? Tell that story and just what your reactions were when you heard it.
1: It was because uh, well, it's
0: startling, but in the context of the book,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like—it's a gut punch, like, isn't it? Definitely. How yes. did somebody put had their work. Definitely. So, so Paul Cannaville was the uh, first black player to play for Chelsea. It's kind of ironic that um, Holland was manager and a very multiracial side. But he was the first black player to play for Chelsea. Early 80s, isn't he? Yeah, 81, 82, yeah. I think. I think it was 82. He so, the, the still
0: very NF, on the... Very,
1: yeah, very. So, um, I think he was signed from a non league team. Uh, uh, he he signed from a non league team starts going through the ranks playing in you know some of the A teams B teams reserves he's doing really well finally gets a chance to play for um, uh, finally gets a chance to sit on the bench and and play for and, and be selected against Crystal Palace for the first team <clears throat> so he um, comes from he comes from Southall does um, Paul Canigal he said he said uh, he was on this coach on the way to the game which had kind of Tables in it. He'd never been on the coach with tables on. He'd been on school trips to places, but a coach with tables on and lamps on the tables were just, he'd, he'd hit the big time. So he'd said that um, he'd got loads of friends and family, actually would, to come down to sell his Park to kind of cheer him on. He gets there partway through the second half. He's itching to get on. He sees the, he's a winger. He sees the left back. He thinks he's really slow. He's really cumbersome and he can't wait to get on and get, Get at him um, as he's warming up. He's racially abused. He, he looks around and he sees it's his own fans who are racially abusing him. And uh, the game has a kind of profound effect on him insofar as you know all his confidence about the about roasting this kind of fullback goes. As soon as he gets the ball, he gives it straight back. He just wants to hide. He wants to get away. He wants the game to end as quickly as possible. Um, from then on. Uh, he's constantly racially abused. When they announce, um, at the beginning of each game, when they announce the team, uh, you know, Kenny Dixon, big cheer. Um, uh, who else played from Pat Nevin, big cheer. Uh, when, when, when you read out Paul Canaville there's booze all over the place. Um, he scores against uh, Fulham in um, a West London kind of derby. The old boo goal says it doesn't says, says it doesn't count because he's black. He's um, he's uh, uh, he doesn't get his of of all the team members he's the only team member who hasn't got his kit sponsored by some local firm. Um, uh, he's, he's, he takes to he takes to sitting behind after games in the dressing room for two or three hours so we can avoid people. Because uh, he doesn't want to go out and uh, meet any of the crowd. Um, on his way to the game, once he's handed national front leaflets, he comes out of a full-on Broadway station by someone who doesn't recognise him. So he's just in a really. And, and the other thing as well is is that um, nobody ever talks to him. Nobody talks to him about what's going on. Nobody. Um, none of the, none of his none of his. Um, Teammates, nobody in the, no, none of the coaching staff, none of the hierarchy in the club, none of them talk to him, um, unt- none of them talk to him uh, about it, about what's what's gone on, and um, and he goes on in that vein for kind of two or three years, and and and, and you know by his own admission, not necessarily in the book, but in, by his own admission, it has a profound effect on his mental health. To be honest, the stress that he was under—it didn't really change until, until Pat Nevin, um, in a game uh, that was televised and where Chelsea fans were once again booing him, um, <clears throat> uh, cup game. Um, yeah, Pat Nevin uh, took it upon himself at the end of the game to uh, to, to speak out on uh, national television. You know, usually. At the end of the game when, you know, they've got Pat Nevin because he scored the winner or something like that. He scored the winning goal, so they usually just want him to say, how would you feel, over the moon, the usual kind of cliches. But Pat Nevin doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to talk about the race and meet it out to his teammates. And that's the point in which this the club is kind of forced to kind of do something about it. So they start to put things in um, in the programme notes and uh, that kind of stuff. But this is kind of a two or three years after he's been, um, there's probably, you know, two years after he's made his debut. So this stuff has gone on for, you know, quite a long time before anybody kind of takes any action. And
0: bring it up right at the date with your PhD, uh-huh. which you're in the uh, last month, so by the time this podcast comes out, you're looking at, now you don't mind me saying, I mean, you come from an extremely sporting family. You've played uh-huh. a lot of sport yourself. Uh-huh. You've experienced a lot of different sports leadership across a range of different sports uh-huh. across the family. So from athletics to football to basketball, all types of games that you've played. Uh-huh. Has that informed your your approach to trying to see the role of black leadership or the absence of within football? <laughs> yeah, definitely. mean, is it, about, is it about thinking about what black leadership within football is? Or is it about... Or is it, or our modern chance, is it more than just looking at the absence of black leadership in football?
1: It's more than looking at the absence. I mean, I mean one. I mean, the biggest issue is the absence of the uh, of the um, uh, black voices within the game or black leadership. The absence of both. But also to kind of give you an inkling about what black leadership might mean. Yeah, and it's, that's I an mean, answer. Yeah. And it's and it's and. Uh, it's different, and one of the things that hopefully will come will, will emerge from you know some of the things that I've um, said is that from the people who have interviewed, they do talk about a different style of leadership, a different type of leadership, and the leadership we've talked about is kind of based on principles of equality, diversity, and uh, and so on and so forth. So you know the idea of um, so so one of the things that um, might. It, it, you know that might happen if we had more black leadership within not just football but in sport more more generally. Is uh, it's that you know particularly in football is a good example where networks are the the are critical. Who you play golf with? Who you play cetera. golf with? Who you who you played with? Um, who did your badges? Who you did your badges with? Who's your mate? Who's your friend's friend? These are all the kind of uh, key networks that enable you to get. On and get your foot on the on the ladder. Everyone gets sacked in the end if you can. If you don't, thirteen cut it, months
0: or something is the average for a league manager it's now. It's
1: ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But you know, getting your face wrong on the ladder is really critical. And what what a black leadership might well do is might well do is challenge some of those lots of the ways in which recruitment is done. Yeah, so because well,
0: it was a badly phrased question, but my, okay. my point I was trying to make but I did badly was you know, your kid or John Barnes or uh-huh. Paul Elliott uh-huh. or Brenton Batson, those people who really had to struggle, Mark Walters, who have struggled through some really shameful moments, uh-huh. does that make them a more empathetic or a better coach, or does it change how they assemble a the squad, do you think?
1: I think, I think it would definitely. Yeah, I think it would definitely um it would definitely change the way in which they it would definitely change the approach to the way in which they coach. I mean, if you
0: think about how Klopp has changed and Course. how people perceive how you deal with players, Course. you're talking about someone who calls himself openly left wing and who he sees himself as kind of being a teacher Course. and he wants to deal with people's mental health and their and how their their mentality as they call it mentality on a case by case basis. If you've struggled through, actually, you know, through a career where people are the, the shameful thing that happened, Mark Wilson, Celtic Park, the shameful thing that happened, John Barnes at Goodison, all yeah, these things definitely must make you a better coach, or must make you think <laughs> yeah. about the mental health, or where absolutely, people are.
1: The, absolutely. I mean, you know, ultimately, it's to be, you know, the, the proof of the pudding in the yeah. as to whether or not it'll make them more successful or not. But I think it'll make them. Dip, they, but there will be different style. They will have different. It Will have an impact on their style success of success is something different though, is it? because success is contingent on how much money you've got and, and recruitment and all of it, yeah, yeah, absolute time,
0: yeah, um,
1: time, uh, and a whole load of other factors, decisions. refereeing decisions, refereeing <laughs> a whole load of other factors that are out of your control. You know, you lose a few games, you know, in the scheme of things, all of a sudden, uh, the chairman and it's come and it's and it's you know October, November, and the chairman can see a kind of a January transfer window on the horizon and you hit the panic button, get rid of you, bring someone new in. Um, you know, for for you know, in the way that everything did with Sam Allardyce, for example. Uh, so, so, so there's a whole load, load of factors that are out of your control. However, I do think that more likely there's going to be much more... Uh, to give it England, if you think about how Gareth Southgate is with the England squad... I think that model of managing, where there's where there's a, where there's much more emphasis on the individual, on the individual, much more emphasis on their mental health, much more emphasis on on support, support for an individual within the context of a team, um, much more, um, and and also support for individual p- players' rights as well. I think those are the things that are going to make, make a difference. And the other thing as well is, in terms of leadership, is that if you think from a youth point of view, we have, if you think of uh, football academies full of black kids from all over the country um, who are being coached by, uh, by and large, not totally, but by and large, by a, a lot of white guys. Okay, So what you have is you have lots of young players coming through the ranks... Who aren't seeing themselves um, uh, represented within within uh, you know within coaching? So it tells them that actually the only thing they're fit for is just to play. Uh, it doesn't say to them that beyond the world of football, you've got uh, you've got um, there's, there's, there's a life for you. And, yeah. even, and I think also, I mean, and the reason i kind of mention that point is that is that only two percent of players who sign a professional contract are still playing at the age of 25 anyway, the vast majority the attrition rate is ridiculous the vast majority aren't going to be playing football, so I think for a young, particularly for the young black kid or any poor kid from some council estate somewhere or from a poor family who's thrown the likelihood is that the, you know, the the, what's my daughter's the likelihood is, is that they've missed a lot of schooling, haven't really focused on their education, thrown all their eggs into the football basket and are left high and dry at the end of it with no career in football. For no fault of their own, it's not that they're not talented because they have been. Um, and, and so thinking about um, what responsibility we've got to those individuals yeah. who aren't going to make it, what duty of care... Does the game have to individuals like that? I think it's part of that kind of whole philosophy about what black leadership might actually well be be about, and the role the
0: class plays in all of
1: this. Massive, massive. Uh, the, the, the thing about social class is massive in so far as, as I said, uh, you know, lots of young talent, particularly in London. You know, academy you know, all the London clubs. You know, if you go to Arsenal, me, me, me. Funnily enough, my nephews in there. Arsenal's development squad at the moment Um f- uh, my brothers told me full of black kids in the in, in the in the development squad and everything else not many black coaches yeah. uh, particularly or well, the way they do operate they tend to operate at the lower end of the academy kind of level Um because it costs less and
0: it, it, it costs and, for their badges. And...
1: and interestingly enough <coughs> it's where you know if you if you, if you use the uh, example of them. Um, American college football and basketball, black coaches are used in a very specific way. They're used to bring in poor black kids, but yeah. that aren't in a pastoral role. They're being used in a in much more of a pastoral role rather than a coaching developmental role. Or yeah. a developmental role. They're used in that way, which um, which de skills a lot of black coaches, to be honest. But
0: isn't it also, I suppose, this is the last
1: question? Go if on. you look at if
0: you look at where Players are being produced, mm. and you look at, you know, there's an area around sort of southeast and southwest London, uh-huh. there's areas around northeast and northwest Paris, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. where a huge number of players, usually black kids uh-huh. off council estates or uh-huh. Uh-huh. um are, are kind of coming, kind of just like fodder for the industry absolutely, They're yeah, yeah. to a mill. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, 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 I, and I said earlier about the attrition rate. Um, And the duty of care that football has to, to, someone said something that was quite um, pertinent to me. I had an interview with somebody the other day who was saying things like, uh, if he's in an academy, there's one kid in an academy, there's two kids in an academy and uh, they're both kind of uh, quite talented. If one's filling out a UCAS form and the other's running laps around the pitch, the kid who's running laps is the one who's more likely to be seen by the coaches as being more committed. The kid who's filling out his UCAS form is being seen as well, he's not really committed, he's got other options, he's looking elsewhere, those kind of things. Rather than seeing him as being someone who's trying to keep his options open and understands football as is an industry and that is up and the opportunity and he has to keep his options open. Uh, and the consequences for him, if he doesn't, is that he's going to be left on the kind of a scrap heap. something ridiculous like 300 ex-professional footballers in prison at the moment. It's just madness. It's just, it's just madness.
0: But like on, a, on, a, on a personal, on a, on a very human level. Mm-hmm. Whenever I look at the Instagram of someone like Odson Edward uh-huh. or Moussa Dembele uh-huh. or Olivier Enchan uh-huh. from my club. Uh-huh. Or years ago, I remember interviewing in my very bad French, George Santos, when okay. he was um, at yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I interviewed crew or something yeah, was his first game. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: Kraken player. Yeah, Kraken. Yeah, yeah. But and I just think, you know, do, do we think about, and that's equally for white working class lads and everyone yeah. else elsewhere, do we think about the cultural alienation of being somewhere in a second language where you may have the liaison on the club looking after you, but do we think about what it's like to live in a mad place like Glasgow or a mad place like Liverpool and making sense yeah. of very idiosyncratic places like those two cities.
1: I mean, you think of someone like Moise Keane, right? He's got a big fee. A big fee. Big expectations. He's 19 years old. He doesn't know the language. He's been, he has been—he comes from an estate just outside of Turin. He's been stuck in Liverpool, away from his family and everything else. That's hard. That's, that's a tough adjustment for anybody to make. You
0: know, um, and he is just grist to this mill. Absolutely, and he has to produce. He has to
1: produce. He has to score goals. He's under a lot of pressure. He's, you know, um, uh, it, I mean, it's a, and I think, you know, and you know, lots of lots of players who come from abroad, uh, not just from abroad, but obviously it's exacerbated by culture and language and all of those things as well. Um But, but. It is uh, there. Th- there's got to be something more that the game can do about the duty of care to support individuals, really, and not 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 just treat them as, uh, like you said, you know, as fodder, just to just to, you know to be discarded when they're no longer of any use to you. Um, I just think that we that we, that everyone should be doing more.